This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd filling in for Halford. He has the day off. He'll be back in tomorrow. This hour of Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, the 2023 RBC JCC Sports Dinner is coming up on March 28th. You can be a part of the dinner by entering the 50-50 draw and the Duick Cadillac Raffle on now. Visit sportsdinnerraffle.com for tickets. This year's guest speaker brought to you by ZLC is Rob Gronkowski. For full event info, go to jccsportsdinner.com. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And uh, now very pleased to be joined on the phone uh, by a regular NHL insider here on Sportsnet 650. And you read him at the Daily Faceoff as well. He is Frank Saravalli. Frank, thanks very much as always for doing this. How are you? Jamie, boys, what's going on? Uh, we're doing well. I'm up uh, very, very early, but uh, working with Bruff instead of Thomas Drance is a nice change of pace. So I'm uh, I'm excited about that and uh, excited to chat with you as always, Frank. So there's lots to get into with expansion and the, the NHL GM meetings on the horizon and all that. But before we go there, you know, we're, we're a few days or almost a week past the trade deadline now. Do you have any kind of last Canucks thoughts on the trade deadline to to share with us and the listeners? Not really. I think we kind of hashed out a lot of the JT Miller stuff last week to sort of wrap it up. And um, there's been lots of talk about it. And and honestly, you see a game like last night and you say, oh, JT Miller, maybe keeping this guy, maybe not the worst thing. So, um, yeah, I, I think the Canucks are in a bit of between a rock and a hard place in terms of determining what to do next. Clearly for the next you know, if you're really trying to retool this team, as they've said, that for the next two to three years, keeping JT Miller makes the most sense. He's going to give you the best chance to win now. Does it make sense longer term? Probably not. Is there another team that will value JT Miller more than you might in the grand 30,000 foot view? Maybe. And if you decide that's the case, you have two questions to answer. One, Who's going to replace JT Miller? And two, what are you going to get for JT Miller? And those are two significant answers that the Canucks haven't found yet. And it's going to be a fascinating summer. Well, let's move on to the NHL general managers meetings. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not going. I assume you might be there, Frank. Uh, Our Monday in Florida. Um, what's on the docket? Have we, have we learned what, what, what's happening or what are, what are going to be the main discussion points down there? So the agenda hasn't circulated to my knowledge. Uh, usually GMs get that in their inbox and it pops out somewhere. Haven't seen it. Uh, but I'd imagine that among the things that will be talked about on there are teams scratching players for extended periods of time for trade-related reasons. Um, is there any other trade deadline talk in terms of you know, one thing I want to ask about is how teams manage injuries with regard to the deadline. You know, is, is there a need or is there a a point in time when the NHL should get closer to the MLB model of trade pending physical? Because I think some teams, and not not anything of, of late, 
or at this deadline, but I think in years past, teams feel like they've acquired players that were damaged goods and didn't really have a full sense of just how injured a player might have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing I, I do want to talk to managers about, and I'm sure there's going to be the usual you know, tweaks and, and rule changes that pop up as well. When it comes to sitting players for trade-related reasons, who is pushing back the hardest on this? Is it the teams? Is it the league that's frustrated that maybe good players might be sitting out and the customers paying for tickets and watching the games aren't going to be happy about that? Or is it maybe even uh, the players who don't like being in that situation? Uh, for example, we had Dan Milstein on our show, and one of his clients was Gavrikov in Columbus. And I know there was a frustration from Gavrikov that he was sitting in. He was in that position. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everyone. I don't think the league loves the idea of changing the competitive balance of, of games. And it's not for gambling reasons. It's more for what you said about people paying a lot of money for tickets to go to see potentially star players that aren't on the ice. I think there is some concern from players like Gavrikov was one of those guys itching to play, but as much as Jacob Chikrin might've wanted to play, for instance, he's also sitting there saying this has gone on long enough in Arizona. I need to get out of here Mm -hmm. and whatever it takes in order to make that happen. That's what I'm cool with. And so for some guys that really wanted to move on, they're not really pushing back against it because it, it's what helps facilitate the movement potentially. So um, I think the one thing I didn't like about it, and I'm sure others didn't as well, is that if something's imminent, sure. Like, you you know, you're hours away from playing a game and you think you're near the finish line of a trade with a team, pull that guy from the lineup. But to pull a guy and then have him sit for two weeks – when something isn't imminent, I think you you start to play a bit of a dangerous game with that. And I think the optics weren't great because some of those teams were floundering with their asking prices and were really, I think, ultimately looking to smoke out the market and induce a few other teams into conversation or to offers. And the fact that that didn't happen, I don't think is a good look for anyone. Hey, Frank, uh, speaking of Arizona, um, this expansion talk or these cities that we're hearing, um, Atlanta and Houston. You mean the cryptic tweets we were getting? <laughs> yeah, from, yeah, I, f- I felt like the. From people felt- using emojis and the zipper faced, oh, I can't tell you anything, but I'm going to just leave you a couple breadcrumbs. Yeah, I felt that- like I was a detective. Uh, I felt no- like I was in, in, in grade seven again. <laughs> <laughs> Does that all have to do, have anything to do with the Coyotes and the fact that they've got a big vote in May um, that's going to determine the future of their Tempe Arena project? And if that doesn't go through, um, they might have to relocate? Or is this talk um, more about, wow, look how much money we could bring in if we just add some expansion teams and... Let's hop on and get th- let's go go from 32 to 34 teams. Well, that part is certainly intoxicating. I mean, there's no doubt. You think of the 500 million paid by Vegas and 650 by Seattle. If you wait a couple years and you look at some of the other franchises that are changing hands, Ottawa's expected to be in the 800 million dollar US range. Um, and then Pittsburgh was already at 900. Like you could make the argument that in order to buy into the club, each one is now worth one billion. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain that if I had the coin, I would pay it. But the point is, 
that is money that goes directly into owners' pockets. And so for those two teams, $1.15 billion, that's $38 million per team. That's a lot of money to, you know, to get for just, you know, signing on the dotted line and, yeah. and nothing really happens to you or your franchise. So there's also more revenue that's piled into the pot. Vegas and Seattle have been strong revenue generators. You know, sources indicated both teams are in the top 10 in league revenue generation. So that's important too. Now, I think part of it is they're keeping their their ear close to the ground for the reason exactly that you mentioned, that there is a real chance that this Arizona Coyotes thing doesn't work out in Tempe. And I know everyone listening is like, yeah, duh. Like, where have you been for the last two decades? But the truth is, depending on who you talk to, the anti-arena movement has done a better job than the Coyotes in terms of mobilizing the vote with this referendum now being 59 days away. Mm-hmm. And there's a real movement afoot to not have this go through. And if that happens, I don't know how the NHL... Uh, look, we've said this before, and they have sort of blindly and fervently backed Phoenix and that metropolitan area and supported them through thick and thin. I don't know how you can possibly say... We're going to continue playing in this 4,500-seat arena, even though the experience is cool. It, it's kind of, it's like a fad. Like, it's cool for five minutes, and then it's like, guys, this is the NHL. You're not generating the proper revenue. You're not – you're letting all 31 other teams down. And so if if – without a permanent solution, I don't know how they could possibly stay. And if they need to go back to the drawing board, it's it's another year and a half to even begin to get somewhere on a proposal. So I think there's an, a realistic chance that if this referendum doesn't work, you're going to see something happen potentially as quick as the the Atlanta Thrashers to Winnipeg Jets in 2011, mm-hmm. where you're you're pulling up stakes and you're getting out. And Houston just makes so much sense. You go from the fifth biggest metropolitan market in the U.S. to the fourth. You stay right in the central division, central time zone. You can draw lines on a map from Winnipeg down to Houston of all those teams in America's heartland. And then you have a ready-made NHL arena too in Toyota center where the Houston arrows played for a number of years. So we know that they can support ice and the building's fine. Like it's, it makes too much sense. So I, I wrote in my piece yesterday at daily Faceoff quotes from D- deputy commissioner, Bill Daly. They're not focused on expansion right now. Uh, he acknowledged the interested parties from Atlanta and Houston and and it's that's normal course of business for the NHL. He said Atlanta and Houston are no better positioned than any other market or potential ownership uh, faction that's presented themselves to the NHL in the last 12 to 18 months. How frustrated are the powers that be, or maybe the general managers uh, around the NHL, with you know the zombie franchise in Arizona, which is you know mostly comprised of you know guys that are on LTIR. Um, you know, I, I I don't really feel bad for players in the NHL, but if there's one team that I really, really, really don't want Connor Bedard to go to, it's Arizona, just because this, like, what kind of atmosphere is that to go into the NHL with? Yeah, a team that's not even trying to win within the next few yeah. years. Yeah. Like, that's perhaps, you know, the revenue is one thing. And and trust me, there is a ton of owners that are not happy with the way things have unfolded in, in Arizona. 
They think Gary Bettman has been too patient, too kind. They understand the appeal of the market. And I think everyone believes that if they could finally get to the right arena in the right location and finally put a team on the ice that's competitive, it's a lot of ifs. A bunch of things have to go together at once that they could be successful there. But there's owners that are unhappy. And then I think you hit it on the head. It's actually the players. Yeah that are beginning to grow most frustrated and had so many issues with mullet arena to start just the sort of temporary nature of it. Um, I think they've sort of calmed and cooled on that. And I think even just being in a sort of college environment has made it a little bit better. The, the buildings at least have had energy and have been full, but still the, the players are not happy sort of with the idea and the owners are not happy with one of 32 not pulling its weight on the same rope as everyone else and contributing revenue. They're a revenue suck, not a mm-hmm. revenue generator. In conversation with Frank Saravelli of the Daily Faceoff here on uh, Sportsnet 650. And, you know, when we start to talk about expansion, and it, it did feel like it kind of popped up out of nowhere. I don't think it was on a lot of fans' radars until wasn't on mine. this week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just expanded, right? It, it, fe- it feels very sudden. And, you know, beyond... It feels like the, the NHL going to 34 teams before the NFL, Major League Baseball, and NBA is just a mistake. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, 32 right? 32 teams because, is so good. It's yeah, like we, 16 uh, teams per conference. You can go... Eight, t- eight divisions of four teams, four divisions of eight teams. It's perfect. The two things that stand out to me are, one, what Bruff just said, right, how perfectly aligned a 32-team is, and then what you just said, Frank, which is they would be the first major North American sports league to go to 34 to kind of break that 32-team barrier. And I just wonder, and I know the NHL says, well, it's not a priority right now, but would those kind of logistical concerns slow the NHL down at all? Or do they just see the potential expansion fees and kind of say, you know what, we'll figure that stuff out because the money's too good to pass up? Well, it hasn't stopped them before. I mean, we were a 31-team league for a while, and there's been odd numbers in between, and they always sort of just deal with it. Even when it was like, hey, we're moving Atlanta to Winnipeg, like they continued to play in the Southeast Division for a while. (laughs) So I'd... Normally, I would say, yes, it it would slow them down and it would slow down any logical business from stepping into an area that makes everyone uncomfortable, but it hasn't ever really stopped the NHL before. So I don't have any evidence to suggest now that it all of a sudden would, but I think from a pure competition standpoint, it should be addressed. Like I, I think there's a real chance and risk that the NHL waters itself down. I think when you look at the way bottom six forwards were impacted on just about every roster with the additions of Vegas and and Seattle, like that's, that's a lot of players that have been taken out from teams. And I I get everyone saying, well, who cares about the bottom six? It, It just kind of, it further pushes everyone toward the mushy middle. And I don't, I don't know that you want that. Yeah, there aren't enough right-shot defensemen to go around for 34 teams, let alone 32 teams. Uh, Frank, I want to ask you about uh, Philadelphia because I know you're a Philly guy. Um, the the D'Angelo suspension for spearing Corey Perry in the groin um, kind of just was, I don't know, it was, it was probably just another added embarrassment for Flyers fans this year. Um, we are actually th- cheering. They were like, yes, that means five games that we don't have one of our top defensemen. Maybe we can get a better draft pick. Well, that's true, actually. Um, where do you think things are going to go with Philly, though? Um, 
Well, it certainly seems like they're heading toward a change. And this this market is just so toxic. It, it has really become, not only do they want a body on the tarmac and a, and a head on a spike, <laughs> but, but they're Billy. very clear in who they, in who they want. Like they, they're, they're out to get Chuck Fletcher and they feel like the moves have been incongruous. They feel like the building has been in fits and starts in terms of where are we heading? What's our direction? It took until a, a vague, weirdly worded statement from John Tortorella a few weeks back to say essentially that this team is rebuilding. They've struggled to sort of cross that threshold, and I don't know if it's for business reasons or what, but the fans are starving for some direction, and I don't know how they get there. I don't know what they do, but they they have to make some kind of change, and, and I just don't, I don't see an environment in which the Flyers could enter next season with Chuck Fletcher still being their general manager. That's how toxic it's become, and I don't think it's all on him. I think there's been a lot of people that have been involved that have whether it's former flyers, whether it's um, you know outside influences, whether it's the business side operations that have been involved in the mix and different decisions. It, it there's too many hands in the cookie jar, and they need proper direction, and they haven't gotten that. And I don't know if that's a symptom or if that's you know what, but it, it they need change. They need something. Uh, if the Penguins don't do anything in the playoffs, or God forbid they don't make the playoffs. Um, do you expect them to make a general manager change with Ron Hextall? Because there's so much anger in the fan bases in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's pretty funny, actually, um, considering the rivalry that those teams have. And now they have like the rivalry for the angriest fan base. <laughs> Although, don't leave out Vancouver. We're still pretty angry as well. Yeah. Um, wh- what do you see happening in, in, in Pittsburgh? I don't. I personally don't see a general manager change. Uh, I think, you know, if you, if you miss the playoffs, maybe all bets are off. I still think they're going to make it. The math is heavily in their favor, and the way Sid has picked up this team for most of the year, and and Evgeny Malkin, I I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. But I think the moves have certainly fired up that fan base as well, and. I also think there's a healthy amount of distrust there between that fan base and Hextall, given where he came from, that they're, they, they're like, well, who is this guy? He's not a, he's not a Pittsburgher. He's not someone that we, you know, sort of see as someone that connects with us or resonates with us. His messaging has, has fallen on deaf ears at time in the public. And it's, they're in between a rock and a hard place in the sense that they they've committed all this term and dollars to their core and yet then didn't want to make any sort of big swings to help them at the deadline. We're not trading our first round pick. Well, like which one is it? You can't be, I always say this, you can't be half pregnant. You either are, or you aren't, and you're either going for it and you're committing to this core, which is the oldest team in the NHL, or you're going to sit back on the sidelines and begin to dismantle it. And you can't waffle between one and the other at the same deadline in the same season in which you made all those other moves. Like, it doesn't make any sense. What kind of role does ownership play in that dilemma in Pittsburgh, Frank? Because I know, you know, Fenway Sports Group has a very particular way they run their sports teams in other leagues, and it it does seem like they would maybe be reluctant to spend a lot of future assets to compete now. But as you said, when you have Malkin and Crosby and Latang at their ages, it's hard to see another logical path. 
Yeah, Fenway Sports was banging their fists on the table saying, you better re-sign these guys. So which one is it? Yeah. And and I, I think the truth of it is that Fenway Sports Group doesn't know what they're doing in the NHL. Yeah. And that's not a knock on them. It's just this is a nuanced business. It, it is. And it takes time to figure out what makes this league tick. And I don't think they've gotten there yet. I think they've relied on Ron Hextall and Brian Burke to help get them there to understand it. I think they're slowly, you know, uncovering more and more with each passing month, but there's a lot to figure out and they're not there yet. And to say, Oh, we're going to apply the same thesis, the same theory to the NHL from major league baseball. It's just, that's not how it works. So that's been a bit of a learning curve for them as well. And, and not to, um, to like stir the pot or anything like I'm not breaking out a giant ladle over here to do so, but I've been, I've been thinking about this question to bring it back to Vancouver for a long time. Cause you asked about the flyers, which team makes the playoffs first, the flyers or the Canucks. I see them in almost exact positions. Well, I, if you're talking just about the playoffs, I think I would go Canucks because yeah. they're pushing for it. Right. And as you said, Philly sounds like they might finally be willing to take a step back. Yeah, but like I think the Flyers are also sitting there in the back of their head, and you heard them say this earlier in the year. Oh, well, if we didn't lose Sean Couturier and Cam Atkinson all year, we'd be a lot closer and maybe probably in the same territory that the Canucks are. What What is the prognosis for uh, Couturier? Because my argument would be that the Canucks have the better young stars. When you've got oh, Pedersen. It's not and, even close. Yeah, when you've got Pedersen, Hughes, and Demko. But they're uh, not enough to get in the playoffs alone. Well, clearly not. <laughs> and just the same way that, you know, Couturier and Konechny and Ivan Provorov are not nearly enough to get in Carter Hart to get in in Philly. I think both these teams are in, in very – they're different but similar situations in that they're proud franchises, both very resistant to the idea of a rebuild, want to retool and get back into the playoffs, and don't really have the proper – flexibility on their cap to really be able to do so either direction frank this was great really appreciate it uh, enjoy the gm meetings next week have a good one guys that is frank saravalli nhl insider with the daily Faceoff, regular contributor here on sportsnet 650 do you use a ladle to stir the pot or i think that would be to serve the soup yeah or you go for a big wooden spoon i think to a stir big the wo- wooden spoon to, yeah. to stir the pot absolutely uh you're listening to the halford and bruff show on sportsnet 650 jamie dodd yes is in for halford this morning uh someone texted in and said that when halford isn't here i'm a lot more serious and analytical um my pushback to that would be, yeah, because I can be. Which is funny because Dodd. I come in and work with you. I'm like, this is so much lighter and looser than right. with Drance. And then mm. the listeners are like, wow, Bruff is so serious. <laughs> so yeah. serious today. But for me, it's like, wow, this is great. And you're allowed let to let my t- hair out a little yeah. bit. You're allowed to talk. Yeah, it's nice. So that's nice. It's, you can it's get, really you get great. A word in. Uh, it's really great. You're listening to the best of the day. I say you the best. The best. And Bruff. This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now joining us, as mentioned, he is the play-by-play voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, our guy, Brendan Batchelor. Batch, what's going on, man? 
Not too much. How are you guys this morning? We're doing very well. Um, so not the uh, not the most thrilling contest last night at Rogers Arena until the end of the game, I guess, when JT Miller wins it with a really nice shot in overtime. What were your big takeaways from uh, the Canucks and the Ducks last night? Yeah, you know, I would agree. It's not going to win any awards for the most entertaining game we've seen at Rogers Arena, and I, I was expecting a little bit more from the Canucks against a team like the Ducks in terms of sort of taking control of that game. But the one thing I didn't necessarily expect based on what we've seen from Anaheim this year is that I thought the Ducks let the Canucks have the puck, let them keep possession for a lot of the game, but did a pretty good job of preventing them from penetrating the middle of the ice. So, you know, as Rick Tockett would say, protecting the guts of the ice. And that sort of led to the kind of low scoring, you know, almost chess match like game that we saw. Um, but that said, I think there's a positive from that for this Canucks team that has routinely given up a ton of goals. You know, the last time they played Anaheim in early November, it was eight to five that Vancouver won. And JT Miller said it after the game. He said, it's nice to not have to have the pressure of scoring five goals to try and win a hockey game. They haven't been giving up as much lately. And part of that is Thatcher Demko, but part of that is that increased commitment to the structure that we're starting to see reap benefits in terms of results now that they've won three games in a row. Batch, we were having a conversation about Vasily Podkolzin, and not that he had a, a noteworthy game last night or anything, but we were having a conversation about trying to get value contracts for the for the Canucks and, and, and who's going to provide value for them. Um, we concluded that Quinn Hughes, uh, even at a cap hit of almost $8 million, the way he's playing is providing value. And Thatcher Demko, if he's at the top of his game, certainly provides value on his contract with a cap hit of $5 million. But then we were looking for other potential bargains. Now, Vasily Podkolzin has not bro broken out yet. In fact, he's only got three game three goals uh, this year in the NHL, and he had a stint in the AHL. What are you seeing from him? And when do you think it might be fair to go, okay, it's time for you to either take a step or don't take a step? Um, because he is 21 years old, and he was a first-round draft pick. Yeah, I think we'll have that conversation going into next season as a player that will be on the last year of his entry-level deal who clearly is starting to put things together in terms of his overall play. It hasn't necessarily resulted in offensive production, but I think a lot of the things that Rick Tockett has been preaching about what he wants this team to be and what he needs from his players are things that Vasily Podkolzin embodies to a certain extent. You know, being a wall guy, making good plays on, on the boards to either get the puck out or keep it in at the offensive blue line, being an inside guy, so having a willingness to go to the front of the net to get to some of those dirty areas. I see both of those things in Podkolzin's game. It just feels like he hasn't quite put it all together yet, but I think that's coming, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if next year is his quote-unquote breakout year where he starts to look a little bit more like that prototypical power forward at the NHL level. Now, I don't know for him personally if that's ever going to mean a ton of offense, but, you know, he, he'll be in the last year of his entry-level deal making under a million dollars next year. If he can just provide you consistency on a third line that is hard to play against 
and chips in with goals too. And I think a big part of the Canucks offseason is going to be finding a center iceman to play on that line because that's been one of the, the biggest glaring issues for this group outside of the right side of defense, which they've corrected to a certain degree in acquiring Philip Hironik. Um, you know, he has the potential to be that kind of player in the short term. And, you know, if he breaks out offensively too, then that would be a bonus in terms of another winger on this roster that can provide some offensive punch. But, you know, for for a team that I think too often has been too easy to play against in some of those areas of the ice, whether it is along the boards or whether it is trying to get to the hard areas, Pod Colson's a guy that clearly has the willingness to get there and he'll need to show that on a more consistent basis going forward. The thing with every young player, though, is to produce, they also need the opportunities and and the minutes. And, you know, I just... I understand why he's playing relatively sheltered and not that many minutes right now, right? He was the, I think, second fewest minutes on the team last night. But if you do want him to take that step next year, you're going to have to put him in an opportunity to succeed. And, you know, when you just look at the roster and how many wings are on the team right now with contracts for next season, then also just the fact that this is a team that's going to expect to push for the playoffs next year. Is it going to be difficult to find minutes for not just Pod Colson, but for Kraftsov, Hoaglander, and some of the young wings on this team? To a certain extent, it will be. But at the same time, you know, you like having that internal competition because it makes those young players earn those spots. And, you know, when you look at overall the performance of the wingers on the team this year, I think there's a lot left to be desired there, whether it's Besser's struggles offensively, Garland's having a down year in terms of production. We never really got a full grasp of what Ilya Mikheyev could be because he was never playing at 100%, and now he's done for the season. Tanner Pearson, who knows what's going to happen with him going forward. So as much as you know, you're right, there is a, a log jam of wingers, there's also opportunity, right? There's, those minutes are there to be taken from some of these players who haven't necessarily had great seasons, and it's up to Pod Colson or Kravtsov or, or Hoaglander coming into training camp if he wants to be on the NHL roster next year to earn those spots. And I think that's something you want within the organization, and it's a fine line between having healthy competition for spots and having no opportunity for players like that. And I don't see it as being a case of no opportunity for the likes of Pod Colson. I just see it as, you know, you've got to elevate your game. You've got to earn those minutes. You've got to have an opportunity or, or play to a level where the coach is willing to give you that opportunity. And I think to Pod Colson's credit, I know he's playing on the quote-unquote fourth line right now with Dries and Kravtsov, but we have seen Talkett move him up the lineup when he shortens his bench in the third periods in the last few games. He was taking shifts with Elias Pettersson and JT Miller at various sequences over the last couple of games. So I think it shows that the head coach has belief in Pod Colson, you know, thinks he can get to the level that, that he expects of him, even if he maybe just hasn't arrived there quite yet. And one thing I'm going to be interested to see from Pod Colson is how he performs over the final 18 games here because it was about the last 10 to 15 games of last season where some of the offense began to click for him and he was producing more regularly. Now, you know, the late season games aren't necessarily the most intense if you're playing non-playoff teams as we saw last night against Anaheim. But I'm going to be interested to see if he can take his game to another level here late in the season and set himself up well for a good offseason to come back into camp in the fall.
the one thing I'm going to be fascinated to see this offseason is what is the market going to be for the likes of Brock Besser and or Connor Garland? Um, what are you seeing from Brock Besser right now? And do you think there's going to be a team out there that is going to be willing to take a chance on Brock Besser without the Canucks having to retain salary? I'm I'm not convinced of that at this point. Um, whether, either that, whether it's retaining salary or adding a sweetener, I don't know what the market will be like for Brock Besser. I'm not confident in it, although – you know, who knows how things could develop, especially if, you know, we've seen some some high-profile free agents come off the board. So, you know, if there's a team that really has a, a need on the wing and thinks that they can help revive Besser and, and his career, then maybe there's someone that would take a chance on it. But nobody's paying a premium to acquire Brock Besser, I don't yeah. think. So that that's where the, the trouble comes in. And in terms of Besser's play, he looks a step behind to me right now. And I don't know if that's skating ability or I don't know if that's hockey sense where maybe he's not anticipating. So he looks slow because he's not in the right spot, but that's my concern for Besser right now is when I watch him play, it kind of feels like, Oh, you're, you're just about where you're supposed to be, or you're Mm -hmm. just about in a spot to create something, but you're not there. And you know, if I can see that as a play-by-play guy who has no scouting background, then I'm sure the pro scouts around the league are going to be aware of Brock Besser's issue in his game right issues in his game right now. The question is, is there a team out there that thinks they see enough in him to work with him and get him back to the kind of player that he we know he can be at the NHL level because he was basically a 30 goal scorer in his rookie season. Um, you know, now he doesn't have the same level of opportunity right now that he did then. He's not playing on the top power play unit at the moment, although he's had cameos there throughout the season. But yeah, I, I'm I'm skeptical right now that there's a trade market out there for him. And I think Patrick Alvin kind of gave us a hint at that in his post-deadline press conference when he was asked about Besser reading between the lines, and this is me paraphrasing, this is not something Alvin said at all, what I took away from Alvin's comments about Besser was essentially saying, well, if he wants to get traded, he's going to have to play better because he's not playing to a level where teams want him right now. My concern with him is just looking at his game log, and there are just way too many games where he's either got one shot on goal or no shots on goal, and that's not with him playing 10 minutes a night. Oftentimes, he's at 17 or 18 minutes a night. Yeah, and that, I, that to me speaks to what I was talking about, about being in the right spots at the right times. If you get to those scoring areas, you create more opportunities for yourself. You have more shooting chances. You're going to create more offense. But, you know, far be it for me to, to say exactly what's wrong in his game. Who knows? Maybe he's still not playing at 100%. He's been through the ringer in terms of injuries over the last few years, and you know, it's tough to see for a guy who came into the year so optimistic. I can remember talking to him at training camp and he was, you know, beaming. Basically, he looked as healthy as he's looked over the last few years. He looked very happy to be coming into camp. He looked confident. He spoke to us in his first media scrum saying, this is the year I'm going to get 30 goals. And instead, he got hurt within the next three days never really got off the ground in terms of starting his season well and is only on pace to score 15 or 16 goals this year. So, um, you know, part of that, I'm sure, is down to the injuries that he's faced, but part of it has to be on him as well where he's got to find a way to elevate his game, find a way to get back to the kind of player that we know he can be, but it just doesn't seem like it's there for him right now and whether he's fighting the puck, 
whether he doesn't necessarily have that first step that that we'd like to see from him. And another thing I think for not just for Besser, but for players in any walk of the game that maybe aren't the best skater, and I'm not saying that Besser's a bad skater, but I wouldn't describe it as one of his strengths, the game just continues to get faster and faster and faster. And we see how players that that can play fast are able to contribute to their teams. He's got to be one of those guys that, even if he can't skate to the greatest degree, has to find a way to be able to play fast and to be able to keep up with the play, and that's not what I'm seeing from him right now. Batch, what are you seeing from JT Miller right now? I thought even before the OT winner last night, uh, obviously scored the shorty earlier in the game as well. I, th- I thought he was really strong. And, you know, a lot of people have been uh, appreciating his play since Talkit took over. What are you seeing from Miller? And, you know, how much would you ascribe to the impact of Talkit? And how much is just JT Miller playing better? Yeah, I think it's, well, I think it's JT Miller buying in to what Rick Talkit is selling. So, there's two parts to that, of course, which is the coach coming in and and you know getting his message across, and clearly the team is playing better and with more structure as a result of that. But the player also has to buy in as well. And too often this season, we were talking about JT Miller in terms of bad body language, bad back checks, slow line changes, uh, you know, getting into arguments with Luke Shen on the ice in front of everybody to see during national games. <laughs> you know, like that was the narrative around JT Miller, and all of that has gone quiet. And I think that's a credit to Miller com- recommitting himself to the kind of player that he can be. And, you know, Talkett clearly trusts him. I asked him a couple of games ago in the pregame interview about his thoughts on the whole JT Miller as a winger, JT Miller as a centerman debate, and he left no room for interpretation. He likes what Miller's doing right now. He sees him as the number two center for this group going forward. So that, to me, is is a credit to Miller, removing some of those distractions and, and those things that can make him a negative sort of presence around the group where, you know, we are talking more about his back check and his turnover and and all of these kinds of things. He's eliminated some of those low percentage plays in his game. He's playing very hard. He's been used in a matchup role. He's had more responsibility in the faceoff circle since the Horvat trade. And right now he's meeting all of those expectations. Now the challenge for Miller is going to be to come into next season and be that kind of player from day one, because by his own admission, it took him about seven or eight games to really get going this year. And what happened? The Canucks lost their first seven games of the season and they were fighting an uphill battle from there on in. Now, Next year, they can't afford to do that. This is a team that clearly expects to make the playoffs with the group that it's got. I imagine that the management group are going to make more moves to try and give this team an opportunity to succeed next year in the offseason, and they can't afford to have one of their top centermen have a slow start to the year or not be ready to go for game number one. But if Miller can carry forward the form what we're seeing from him right now through the rest of this season and into next year, then he can be a force to be reckoned with down the middle. But he has to be a player that can have that two-way impact and doesn't let some of that other stuff in his game creep in. Because if it does, then it affects his ability to be an impact player for this team, which directly affects their ability to get results with the way this roster is constructed. Batch, the Canucks only have 18 games left in this season, and a lot of people will say that it is mercifully 
drawing to a close. Uh, but I'm really curious to see Philip Hronik. I want to see what kind of player this guy is. I've never watched a Red Wings game or I had never watched a Red Wings game and been like, wow, I can't wait to see how Philip Hronik looks. You know, like I, I think there's been so little focus on that player. And, you know, I, I I would challenge, you know, this Canuck fan base to to admit, like, had they even heard of Philip Peronik or did they even know anything about him before he was traded to the Vancouver Canucks? How many games do you think we'll see this guy play for the Canucks down the stretch? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, Tockett said he was hoping he's a week away, but characterized him as more week to week. So I would look at it as hoping he can get back before the end of the month. And, you know, let's say... He's back at the end of next week or, you know, they've got a back-to-back, not this coming weekend, but next weekend. So I can't imagine they'd want to play him in both games of a Mm back-to-back coming off injury. So if we assume that he can get back in for the game in Anaheim on March 19th, then he misses four more and that's 14 games that he could play. So, you know, I would set an over under at like 12 and a half games as to how many we'll see from him. And it remains to be seen what his recovery is like. Although the fact that Tockett said he was in the gym yesterday, I think is probably encouraging for a guy that, that has an upper body injury. So um, yeah, maybe a dozen games somewhere in that neighborhood. And that should be enough to kind of learn a fair bit about this player. Although I think it would be unfair to him to read too much into how he plays down the stretch because he is fresh off coming off an injury. He is joining a new team and I'm fascinated to see whether they put him with Quinn Hughes right away or whether they, you know, with some of the other injuries they have on the back end feel that they need to put him on his own pairing. Um, but you know, I would hope for a 10 to 12 game sample size from Philip Hironic to see how he fits into this roster. I'd expect that he's a guy that they'll be willing to play in all situations. So likely on PP2, um, certainly on the penalty kill as well. He's played there before in Detroit, and it wouldn't surprise me if he logs some pretty big minutes at five on five, especially if they play him with Hughes, too. Um, someone texted into the show earlier and said, Noah Juleson's got a bit of a Luke Shen feel to him. And I was kind of like, you know what? That's, that's actually not a bad, not a bad call. And Jamie and I were discussing earlier in the show, how we expect the Canucks to have Quinn Hughes on one pair in the top four and Philip Hronik on the other pair, just because they need to spread out their talent. And you got to see if Hronik can carry a pair by himself. Um, but Noah Juleson, what have you seen from him? Um, I know the, the the depth defenseman in Vancouver have been getting a lot of uh, positive um, comments, you know, whether it's uh, Guillaume Brisebois, who just signed a, a new two-year extension, or Christian Wolanin, or, um, you know, Noah Juleson, or I'm probably forgetting, you know, even Kyle Burroughs has been getting, getting mm-hmm. a lot of love lately. Um, what have you seen from Juleson? Because we got to remember that this guy was, correct me if I'm wrong, a former first-round draft pick. Yeah, and the way I would describe Juleson's play right now is it's quiet, which is a really good thing for a guy that I don't know where you would have put him on the depth chart coming into the year, like 11th or 12th in terms of this organization's defenseman. But he doesn't make a lot of mistakes or he hasn't made a lot of mistakes for my money. And, you know, I think the conversation's a little bit different around him as it is around Willannon and, and even Breezebois because Willannon is clearly a more offensive-type defenseman, gets up in the play, helps create. And, you know, I think I've been pleasantly surprised by how well Breezebois has done in that regard, too, playing this year. Um, but, 
you know, for Juleson, he's maybe not that prototypical puck mover, but I, I like the Luke Shen comparison because he's come in, he clearly has a physical aspect to his game, but, you know, coming in with the structure that Talkett has integrated, he seems like he's succeeded very well. And again, you know, the expectations for me with Noah Juleson are if we're not talking about him at the end of the game for the wrong reasons, it's probably a good night for him, which I know is cliche, but especially for a defenseman of his profile with some of the issues he's gone through with his career as a former high pick that, you know, battled injuries and has bounced around between a couple of teams now. You know, the fact that he's giving them serviceable minutes without being a liability out there, I I think speaks to the way he's played and also speaks to the fact that, you know, Jeremy Colleton has also been getting a lot of love for the way he's developed some of these players down in Abbotsford. I think that is key too. But also the environment that these, you know, relatively inexperienced NHL defensemen are being put in is an environment where they have an opportunity to succeed much more than we've seen for the Canucks over the past few years, where you would feel bad for a guy like Noah Juleson going into the lineup because you knew how porous this team was defensively and how much of a penchant they had for getting running around in their own zone. A lot of that noise has quietened too here over the last few weeks, and it's given these guys an opportunity to have that success. Obviously, they have to come in and play well and play to that structure too in order to to have that level of success but you know much like we talked about the goaltenders being put in tough situations throughout this season I think that was true of call up defensemen too and that's not the case now so it's nice to see Juleson and Brisebois and Willannon and Burroughs getting back into the lineup all having opportunities to thrive and if I had told you before this recent stretch that those were going to be four of your six defensemen, and yet you were going to find a way to th- win yeah, three games yeah, in crazy. a row, I don't think anybody would have believed it. And that, to me, speaks to the level of structure that Rick Tockett has been able to employ here in under two months, which is really impressive, I think. Batch, appreciate it, man. Uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks, boys. That is Brendan Batchelor, voice of the Canucks here on uh, Sportsnet 650. Isn't some of the structure also, it's not so much like where to be on the ice, it's just like... Hey, don't do such stupid stuff. Yeah, which you know, like don't don't like manage the game a little bit better and knock down the the high risk plays and protect the middle of the ice. Like that's not so much structure as like, hey, you guys have been playing hockey for a while and you're yeah. all pretty good considering you made it to the NHL. It, it's so baffling this idea that Bruce Boudreau was incapable of getting a hockey team to play with any semblance of discipline and structure. And then Rick Tockett comes in and it's night and day because as much as Boudreaux has the reputation as an offensive coach, you look back at his past teams like Minnesota and Anaheim. It's not Mm -hmm. like they were hemorrhaging goals. It's not like they were disasters on the ice. And again, as you said, these guys have all played hockey. Like some of the mistakes have nothing to do with coaching. And Boudreaux would say, I'm trying to teach them, and they're yeah. just not doing it. Like a lot of it just came down to the players. Mm-hmm. I think it's more than anything, not to take away from Talkett specifically, but there's something to be said for the new coach bump. New guy comes in, it's a kick in the pants. You want to impress him. You're like, ah, okay, we got to right. smarten up a little bit here. And we know the things that he's emphasizing. Yeah. So these are the things I'm going to focus on. You're listening to the best of the day. I say you the, you the best. Halford. And Bruff.